Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and good night, wherever you are in the world, and welcome to another episode of Endurance Chat. I am Michael Zalvari, also known as Floodman11, and today we are wrapping up what has been a very interesting 2019 for sports cars. Uh, we're going to look back at the most recent round at the uh, WEC, 8 Hours of Bahrain, talk through some of the breaking news uh, in the WEC for the last that we've had in the last few weeks. And then we'll just wrap up our thoughts on the 2019 year in sports cars. And joining me on this endeavor, we have Austin Zetsman, also known as Cookie Monster FL. Good evening, Cookie. Good evening, Michael. I don't know. Is it evening over there by you? Um, it's actually nine in the morning, so it's not evening for me at Good all. Morning. <laughs> <laughs> it's a uh, it's a kind of wet, kind of cooler uh, day in uh, in Central Florida here, but. Uh, Dude, it's it's we're, we're getting close to race season almost again, and uh, we start to get roar news, and uh, we've been getting so much news about the WC uh, uh, seasons coming up, and uh, especially changes to this current season that it's really not felt like there's been a, a, any break at all, um, including an eight-hour race that we just had. Yeah, it's it's crazy how quickly the sports car season comes around again. It's like since the the WEC eight hours of Bahrain, which was only two weeks ago at the time of recording, we've got a whole three weeks for the Christmas and New Year break, and then it's the Raw, it's Dubai twenty four, it's the you know Bathurst twelve hour Daytona, and we're, we're back straight into the swing of things again. It's just, it's, yeah. There's just no off season anymore. Well, and and you would get what we would. I almost want to call a major of the current WC championship in its, in its form uh, where you'd have a longer than six hour race. Mm. In, in my definition, it would fit something like that, which would include Sebring and which adds some character and some definition to the championship, which I've said in the past is I think it's good. And yeah, we absolutely like an actual eight hour race that takes place on almost a tilt drum track. Uh, and I don't know. I don't know if I really got the extra amount of two hours worth out of the eight-hour event. I I don't know if you did, but was it was there a noticeable difference between the six-hour and eight-hour race? I don't I don't know. Yeah, look, I I enjoyed the eight hours of Bahrain, but it did kind of become pretty slow in the middle of it. Um, and I, that's not from a racing perspective. That's just from a like an event perspective it just kind of began to meander in the middle section i think that's because of what happened at the very beginning of the race and then the reliability problems some teams encountered so i and for me as well it was a pretty hard race to watch because i was uh it started at 10 p.m my time went through to 6 30 in the morning so that's a pretty pretty hard shift to put in um to watch a to watch a motor race so i probably didn't get as much enjoyment out of it as I thought I would, um, but I still I still like Bahrain as a track for WEC. I still think there was good action in terms of multi-class and all that sort of stuff, but yeah, as far as the race in isolation, it wasn't... It didn't feel like an extra two hours of enjoyment. Maybe it felt like an extra half an hour of enjoyment. Yeah, and it, it, it really depends, too. I think some of the racing that has been really spectacular at Bahrain has also been a, a part of unique strategies and just the way the race strategy has played out for certain teams. They got advantages early and then faded back from either bad luck or bad calls or just not the right combination of car, track, and tire. Let's just say that. But 
definitely we were seeing a, a suffering when it came to just the amount of cars on track in LMP1 to actually mm. have any sort of fight against Toyota. Because, uh, I think if last year or even two years ago even proved anything is that Outside of Le Mans, the Toyos are just bulletproof, it just seems like. And you're going to need to be able to beat their sterling reliability first off and then also show up with performance. So the performance is there clearly with both of the other cars, but it just shows that um, there's a long way to go for Janetta and Rebellion just kind of needs to put it together. It's it's kind of teetering on that Mazda issue where they're just almost stumbling over themselves a little bit but I, I, I'm still pretty confident that they know how to get it done. So, uh, but yeah, you're not wrong. The uh, the opening, let's just say the opening five percent of that race really just told the story of the rest of it. Yeah, um, especially the overall. Yeah, setting. especially in LMP1, the the first corner kind of killed the LMP1 race, and everyone kind of knew it as well when uh, when we had the the run off the line and the contact between the number five and the number one which really took the the rebellion and the genetas pardon me out of the out of the action and yeah it was just such a dumb innocuous incident as well between the the number 5 and the number 1 so if you haven't seen it the the long and short of it is uh both cards go side by side through turn 1 fine and then on the entry to turn two, Charlie Robertson loses the rear of the car, makes impact with the side of the number one car, spinning Bruno Senna out into the dust. And then it was basically chaos from there. So you had the the major battle of the overall in the race, uh, knocked out the first corner, basically. And then uh, for the rest of the race, uh, like rebellion suffered some further issues they had a gearbox selection issue i think the car wasn't going to second gear properly um and then uh janetta had two gearbox failures throughout the race uh one in i think the fourth hour and then another few hours later so they lost both of their cars throughout the race so what you ended up with was a wounded rebellion coming back through the field uh two janettas that ended up breaking down and then the Toyotas who were untouchable and yeah it was a race for Toyota that was won by being consummate professionals and not not having any problems whereas the other teams did have problems but if you look at the pace data from the race you could very much put an argument forward that Toyota weren't the fastest car on track well, clearly, yeah, I think the data shows that. And I think the success ballast is doing its job. It's just that the amount required to get to the end of these races in one piece and also without, you know, major stopping time in the pits is a lot still for these privateer teams. And whether we're taking it for granted or not, Toyota's, like I said, is just able to get to the end. I mean, you could look at any data. I mean, um, Charles is your uh, is giving us a lot of good kind of just breakdowns for lap data, but you could just go to almost anything and look at fast lap time. It's not the Toyotas, but they're just their average stint lengths are just that much better than the privateers. Their pit stops are much much quicker. Their um, in and out laps are much much quicker. So they're just able to maintain their gaps and even uh, you know extend gaps just by doing little things that a factory team that has done this for almost a decade now, uh, you know, has, you know, is able to do. So I don't think this is anywhere surprising, especially when 
the privateers had so much problems early on and one and the two like out of the three bullets in the chamber just immediately mm. have uh seem to have gearbox issues or electrical issues right off the gate too so that doesn't help either so right and this is um and this is kind of where you have to face the music a little bit if you're a wc or a wc fan whatever when it comes to car counts and what that we are down to this low it doesn't make it that great you know even if we're having let's say an extra two to three cars that are uh, on the grid they're even slower than what we have just to say the smps are, are out there oh, man. they're not really being funded they're just kind of they're running off of last year's data but they're at least there you know there's some pace there and they're they're probably getting bop pretty well with the success ballast so who knows maybe they're not even they know that they're going to potentially break if they push 100 so they push 90 they hmm. push 80 and they just make it to the finish line on the same lap as the Toyotas. That's at least that's something. And because it changing that gearbox for rebellions, that wasn't catastrophic. Like they, they were only three laps down. Like that that's not that bad at all. And if SMP doesn't have any problems, doesn't have any changes, are they on the lead lap? Are they, you know, right there? Are they yeah. just a lap down? So it makes it a little bit makes it a better sell. Makes it so that Toyota have to play more honest. That they have, they can't just play conservative. They, you know, that where they make up their time is is different. But anyway, so that's where you can make that argument, and I totally agree with it. But these races are going to happen. I mean, mm. it's an eight hour race, so Sebring have, might also be a bloodbath. This might just be another telling for an, uh, another Toyota walkover. Well, in saying that though, there's two points that I want to raise here. Firstly, besides that, the one gearbox problem for the rebellion, which they suggested may have been linked to the first lap damage. Um, they had a otherwise flawless run and they finished three laps down on the race winner, which was due to the three laps that they lost repairing their problem. Um, so the, the the pace is certainly there. The longevity may be there, but the, the encouraging thing is they didn't lose anything more f- after that pit stop. Um, the second thing is, I wonder if SMP had maybe waited a week for their announcement that they were pulling out to see the uh, the success ballast change, whether or not they would have stayed and we would have had a uh, eight-car or seven-car class and how that would have evolved throughout the, the year. Because, I mean, I thought the S&P, the, the BR, BR1, was quite a good car for the LMP1 class, the privateer class. And we had some great battles between S&P and Rebellion last year, last season rather. And it would have been really fascinating to see how that would have evolved with the success battles this season. But alas, we did not get to see that, um, which is a shame, a real shame. It's a shame that it's a shame that we, we lost another privateer before we could really see a competitive run from the S&P guys. Um, but at least the rebellion is keeping the Toyotas honest, I think. Yeah, I, I would I would agree. I mean, looking at some of the lifetime analysis would would definitely show that. I mean, they were consistently throughout the entire stint uh, on on pace. You know, putting in times faster than any other car on track, mm. which includes both Toyotas. So there's a case to be made to say, yeah, we if we did not have any of those first lap issues and we didn't have a gearbox issue, if it was related to that first lap issue, here we are. We're fighting the Toyotas. Which, would, which uh, I mean, if we, I feel like we're, we're saying this a lot. 
and I, I don't think like we're 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 unjustly justifying you know these results and saying okay well if this would have happened this would have happened this would yeah have happened. but it it does the the pattern is annoying to have to kind of just keep reiterating because it does seem like we're right there for how close this is and you know the weird endurance factor to endurance racing keeps barring us from seeing, you know, the quote unquote close racing that we're looking for that we had from the factory days. So, well, um, the factory days were somewhat of an outlier in terms of overall endurance, uh, endurance racing. Like the, the 2005, 2006, uh, sorry, 2015, 2016 seasons were astronomically competitive not only because the factories were so closely matched on pace, but because they all had similar longevity. And so you had the endurance aspect as well as the crazy close battling on t- on track. Uh, and that's really been the first and only time I've seen that in the top level of sports cars in my time watching sports cars. So that's more of an anomaly than it is the norm. Normally you get situations like this where it's a team with longevity that takes results. And I would argue that even in the Peugeot Audi days, uh, that that was the case. And even before that, in the earlier LMP1, early iteration of LMP1, it was the teams that had the longevity as opposed to outright pace that managed to take race wins. But we didn't. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're not. You're not. I mean, you're not wrong. But there's a, there's a lot of it too, where you know, there's where you see some manufacturers kind of just that get catered into the next set of regulations Mm. and where that's, or maybe a better point is that where IMSA has put forth regulations that have almost killed chassis where you've Mm. had the Nissans or the uh, Toyota Eagles, uh, Eagle Marks or that kind of thing where you get these bands of a specific thing that kind of restrict the performance of a specific style of race car that a, a spe- you know a specific team or manufacturer designed which you really can't get here because you're trying desperately to make sure that that manufacturer doesn't just outright leave the series you want them to go okay sure we're all right to like re- reset the tools and toyota have said that but mm. you know there is that always going to be that hesitancy i think because you're trying to almost slap them on the wrist pretty hard to let everybody else catch up so that they just, they don't, you know, cry and run away. And I, I, are they walking it? What, how cooperative is Toyota? It seems like they are pretty cooperative, but you know, it's just a balance that the ACR has Hmm. to kind of walk. And the drivers aren't necessarily happy about it either. (laughs) Like I remember it was, uh, Boemi, a few at, at Shanghai saying, we have no pace. This is just going to be an awful race for us. And then Hartley even said at Bahrain that they weren't competitive uh, in a pure lap speed sense and they were trying to make the stints last and trying to catch up. So the there there is the, yeah, there is the how much you take away from the factories in order to bring the privateers into competitiveness. Um, and to be honest, like, from a fan perspective, they seem to have the, the WEC seems to have done a pretty good job. Like Rebellion didn't run away with it at Shanghai, and they potentially could have run away with it at Bahrain. Uh, if you look at the lap time traces, they were about uh, a peak of maybe half a second quicker per lap to the Toyotas, which, as the race went on, reduced down to about a quarter of a second. So they had definitely had the pace. Um, 
but the Toyotas being a professional outfit with with their professional uh, team and car and all that development behind them, they were just flawless, and that was what they needed to be, and they got the race win. Um, so it'll be interesting to see next season when you start to get the balanced performance in the LMP1 class with the hypercar regulations, um, how Toyota goes up against some more inexperienced teams like the Aston Martin team and the Glickenhaus team uh, and whether or not their, not intrinsic, but their experience in WEC competition, their professionalism and their uh, ability to deal with changing race conditions holds for them as compared to the other teams that maybe don't have that experience. I think the factor too that would I would say is even more pressing would be the grandfathered LMP one privateers. Yeah, that'll be another interesting uh aspect because the they'll have to really lower the pace of the grandfathered cars. So like if you look at peak lap speed, um the the rebellion last year at Le Mans was putting in uh, sub 320s now they're expecting the hyperclass uh, hyperclass the uh, hyperclass <laughs> the hyperclass um they're expecting those cars to have a average lap time at le mans of 330 so that's a 10 to 12 second difference in lap time so that's a, a significant power drop that the the rebellion and the Janetta are going to have to suffer in order to maintain the hierarchy in that class Aren't the uh, LMP1 privateers are pretty pretty trimmed out in terms of the like the current BOP standing anyway? Where they were like, "All right, we're gonna keep trying to give a little bit more performance to the privateers. All right, we're gonna keep going. Mm. All right, we're getting close, guys." And I think didn't they hit like the max amount they have been able to give? So I feel like you, if you can add some of that ballast back into it, that's definitely what they're gonna. That's definitely what they're gonna do just to get them down anyway but i think obviously with the performance you know limitations just to get them into a specific target lap time but they'll also be maybe what one to two seconds in, in with bop probably slower than ultimate pace at lamar yeah um I, that seems to be what the aco tends to do with these things for grandfathered cars i mean that not necessarily what they used to do but in recent that's what it seems to be for old older uh older era equipment that can race in the same class so but those are going to be the reliable cars for the first like three to four um you know rounds in the in, in next season and I, I i would not be shocked if one of those privateers win really and uh yeah because i mean you do have aston martins and you have the Toyotas who should have enough time to at least get a lot of the gremlins out, but you never know. Mm. And this is going to be the first year. I I, it, I wouldn't be surprised if one or if not both of them kind of show up to the prologue as a as a rough kind of extension to a shakedown period because it, it seems like there's they're pretty tight timelines. Well, uh, so we, yeah, we knew from the very beginning there'd be a pretty tight timeline because only announced the regulations about ten months before the first race. Well, sure, right. So this is going to be tough for everybody to make sure that they've got a car that gets to the first round, let alone is able to compete uh, and perform better than seasoned cars, which these privateer cars will be by next year, and will be reliable for the first six hours. So, you know, I, that's why I'm I'm thinking that there's definitely a good shot for privateers to come out on top, even if they might not be the fastest car, or they might be BOP'd to be behind these guys, but are still able to pull through with reliability. 
inversely so with what's going on right now, which they are they're they're trying to output pace that is able to beat the Toyotas, but they're not able to keep it up reliability wise or unfortunately mentally, which yep. we saw the first laps. So. Yeah. And I was gonna say a first lap incident doesn't help. <laughs> it really doesn't help. Exactly. Um yeah. So uh shall we move on from LP one? I feel like we've talked pretty well about yeah, LMP1. Yeah, Toyota, Toyota 1, guys. So yeah, Toyota 1, uh, 2. They'll have huge amounts of ballast for uh, Coda, and um, I, 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 I'm I, thinking Rebellion or Janetta have a great shot. I would say Janetta have a great shot to win at, yeah. at Coda, for sure. You'd, you'd hope so. They're running, they should be running with as minimum ballast as they're allowed. Um, and yeah, like the Janetta program, it's kind of frustrating to me because it's obvious that the car has pace, it's obvious that some of the drivers have pace, but all the pieces aren't fitting together in the way that you'd expect from a LMP1 race team. And I got into a bit of a, a bit of a tiff with a few people in the in the race chat during the race when I was uh, being a bit down on Janetta's little mistakes, uh, like the fact that uh, Jordan King went into the wrong pit box during one of their pit stops and. You know, saying that you know you wouldn't necessarily want to put your most inexperienced, although one of the quickest drivers, starting from pole on the start of a, uh, well, not from pole on the front row of an eight-hour race because you, or you know, on cold tires uh, and having to have the responsibility of warming up the tires properly, getting through the first few laps on uh, lesser, like. Uh, on cold tires or not at peak performance tires and i you know called called these things out as saying you know maybe the team should have thought about these things and been a bit better and you know maybe started with ben hanley who's a uh, a much more experienced driver or you know been a bit more uh sure of their radio calls and that sort of stuff but you know like looking at any of these incidents in isolation it's easy to say oh yeah, that's a one-off thing and you know that's one little mistake and it doesn't really have that much effect on the rest of the thing. But it's it's more of a it's more of a systemic issue. These little mistakes are just indications that the team isn't ready. <laughs> and like you know, I know it's I know the the team is literally the guys who turn the wrenches in the factory and it's not a professional race team in the way that Toyota have a professional race team, the way that Rebellion is a professional race team, the way that Porsche runs a professional race team, or that Audi had Yoast running their professional racing outfit. But it's it's a frustrating program because I just wish these little mistakes didn't have such a big effect on the on the car and on the team. Yeah, I I'm still the opinion that they're a first year team. Yeah. And they're uh they're just they, these things are just going to happen. They've they have a reliable chassis underneath them, and I think that 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 puts a lot of confidence in me as just a casual fan of them for a while that they know what they're doing aerodynamically, mm. and and that's going to go a long way with them. I think in the future, whatever they want to do, and I hope that they look at hypercar DPI two something like that because I think that. I like the way that they are designing and building LMP1 chassis, and it's not just Oreco, which is this large corporate esque, you know, conglomerate that's attached to the ACO. Yeah, it's like the Empire, even though I love Hugh Dishanak. But yeah, so I I'm giving them some slack because I like them, and I also think that's just it's a good it's a good year one learning curve for them with it. 
a reliable with a decently reliable fast car. They just need to work out the bugs and get rid of some bronze drivers eventually. Yeah. And I but. I'd love to see what a I'm going to make some enemies here. I'd love to see what a proper race ke- team could do with that car. I'd love to see what a Yoast could do with that car or what a I don't know TDS racing could do with that car or and yeah. Uh, yeah or just someone some team with a bit more professionalism because even even Lawrence Tomlinson came out and said you know we're not a professional race team and these mistakes are indicative of us not being a professional race team so he's aware of it and I would it would have been much more satisfying to see the absolute pace of that chassis in the hands of a professional race team as opposed to a under understaffed underexperienced race team that we have in team LNT and like i mean full props to them for committing to doing the season the way that they have um after not being able to secure a, a customer and taking it in house full full props to them for bringing on that challenge and committing to it um but yeah it's it's not at the standard, not at the level of Rebellion or Toyota. So, yeah, that's my spiel on Janetta. Loving that. Loving it. Uh, so to wrap up in LP1, uh, number seven took the win, which gives them the lead in the championship. Uh, one lap ahead of the sister car, the number eight. And then Rebellion was three laps down on the leader. Uh, both Janettas retired throughout the race with gearbox issues. So LMP 2 Now, did you see much of the LMP 2 race during Bahrain? Hmm. It was mighty difficult. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> <laughs> it, kind of, it, it absolutely flew under the radar. We had a few early skirmishes between the Alpine and the G-Drive car and the, I think the high-class racing car as well got in the mix. But really, the race was controlled start to finish by the number 22 United Autosports, Orica, uh, taking their breakthrough victory in WC competition. So congratulations to United Autosports. But yeah, apart from those few little skirmishes, it was really a uh, a more spread out race. Um, and I kind of want to try and figure out why. Like, why did we have uh, the LMP2 cars, especially more so than the other classes, spread out across vast sections of the track as opposed to battling on track that we saw in especially the GT classes? Well, I mean, some of this can just be down to different things. I mean, I think pit strategy was one, tire uh, compounds, another driver rating, driver kind of talent uh, being even another one. So, but I I mean, the the thing that I guess sticks out to me is another Michelin win this year. Yes, that is true. Uh, Michelin taking taking home the win in that class um but the next two cars that finished were both the goodyear cars um the joda sport uh, number 38 came home second and the jackie chan gc car coming home third so is it a is it a tire thing or is it a united autosports thing then i think it's a united autosports thing pretty clearly even just based on how they're they've been doing lms i mean they're they seem like they have they, they understand the current LMP2's strengths, uh, regardless of chassis. They just kind of have, all right, this is where a neutral balance in this car or a, a type of car that, that is the LMP2 is. Mm. 
we know where it is and we can just kind of find it in each chassis and they've absolutely found it in the in the uh, areca chassis so i think it's definitely right now they're the hot team uh just like we've seen uh g drive or jcdc in the past that kind of thing so i think it's a little bit of that but it, it, it's so close right now and I, mm. I i think they were able to execute they were um especially with average lap times they were very very consistent with that and i think that they were just nailing strategy which united Osparts is very very good i think they have a very very good kind of uh, uh race management kind of strategy team behind that they just are very very seasoned it's a big it's a big team so um i think we're just seeing a lot of the eventual united autosport kind of coming out party and it just hit on a big endurance night really yeah. <laughs> and quieted completely quieted the lmp2 race which should have been pretty there should have been some more conversation about it given how close everybody's average lap times were and we won't talk about the delara but um but yeah was- you, you're exactly right when you look at um the average lap times and the specifically the am lap times as well i think that's where the difference is in the average lap time the entire field is within a second as a po- oh, except for the delara um so we've got again um sports car engineering dot blogspot plugging a good friend oliver trevor trevor vasaurus um who's given us advanced access to his data that he's put together because he hasn't written up the the blog post yet um but all of the cars are within a about half a second to a second of peak lap time across their entire race the difference for me is that the when you look at the am lap times phil hansen his fastest laps were faster than everyone else until you get to maybe the 25th lap which is which is about a stint um where uh gabriel aubrey's laps start to become faster than phil hansen's and so uh gabriel aubrey his team was the Jackie Chan GC car. They finished third in the end. Um, but I think it, it, it's more of a Phil Hansen being exceptional in the sense that he was in the car versus, you know, any difference in the car or driver or setup. And yeah, United Autosports executed their strategy to a T. They got out in front very early. Um, I think, in fact, because of the, the fracar in LMP1 in the first corner, United actually had a few LMP1 cars separating them from the rest of the LMP2 field, and that was enough of a break for them to get the clear air that they needed to build that gap. And then that gap was just never overcome throughout the rest of the race. Right, and really, we didn't we didn't see a whole lot of incidents, any long safety car periods, or anything that really kind of interrupted a ton of the leaders' hit strategy, that kind of thing. So, I mean, you, there you did see some differentiation here and there, but yeah, you're right. Um, there was some really, really good stints put in by all of the United Autosport drivers, and they really just performed on a much, much more a consistent level throughout the entire eight hours mm. and drove a, a really really good lmp2 race yeah it's it was yeah it was very much a what you call maybe a g drive performance where they just kind of drove away and controlled the race um mm-hmm. on that note though what happened to g drive and alpine like where were they <laughs> yeah i think alpine's the more telling one I, something about g drive is with rusinov i like he he he's a gentleman driver to 
me, you'd mm. almost be like what Ben Keating would be if Ben Keating was like, let's just say, 10 years younger kind of deal. Or, um, yeah, I, in that regard, I see him as being a driver that is more prone to making mistakes or prone to being more inconsistent yep. or or having that bad stint, all right, having that consistently race by race. We've seen this happen to him before, too, where his pace maybe not isn't always there. I, I'm not going to say that it was it, it showed up here, but there's been kind of where the overall setup of that car doesn't seem to be very neutral, and it definitely seems to be twitchy and nervous. And I feel like that is a, a little bit of a tell on to how some of the drivers need to have that car set up versus others. So the thing that yeah is is concerning to me, well not concerning, but just is interesting is yeah the Alpine is not well really on pace or wasn't yeah it was it was noticeable and i think people were even making mention of that uh during the race too that it was just not able to keep up with any of the you know the fast cars three. yeah yeah the, yeah i would say almost just the entire podium yeah and coming from where they were last year where they were championship contenders and you know won le mans and were in the box seat for a lot of that championship they've taken a pretty steep fall from grace and part of that might be due to the am driver pierre rags who's been absolutely stonking in elms uh has, is not at the level at least in wec trim of the likes of phil hansen and gabriel aubrey and even even roberto gonzalez which is a, a bit of a surprise to me i would have uh, put rags maybe in that group, but he's he's a good second off of that pace. But even just the rest of the team, it doesn't it doesn't ever look like the car is on it, if you know what I mean. Like you get you, you can see some cars when they're driving around uh, and they look even if they're not at the limit, they just look on. They look quick, and the Alpine just doesn't have, seem to have that something at the moment. Uh, so they, they ended up finishing fifth, and then the G-Drive car, we made mention, finished fourth. So they were, to me, they were looking, should have been looking at being podium contenders, but they finished, you know, half a, half a minute plus away from third place Jackie Chan DC. So yeah, it's, what's what's going on? What's 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 going on? What? I think I, I think I know actually what's going on. You think on. you know? Um, yeah. So I, I was just taking a look, and I, I, I just noticed that both of these cars are driving different chassis than the other than the Oreca 07s. I think if they switched to Oreca 07, <laughs> like kind of what the uh, United All Sports guys did uh, for this season uh, for LMP2, maybe they would be potentially have more pace. Could be born neutral of a car, right? Yeah. So, so we're gonna go to full Formula Oreca. So even the rebrands, even just the branding is putting the balance of that car off. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> Stick, stickers have weight. <laughs> oh, brilliant. <laughs> um, we had a, a good point raised in the chat, actually, from uh, Ollie Trovasaurus. Um, he makes mention that the G-Drive racing in ELMS trim normally races on Dunlops, whereas here in the WC they're racing on Michelin, so that might have been a point of difference for them and for Rusinov uh, in that car. Uh, so, yeah, that's that's potentially a uh, a an issue that they would have had to work through. Um, but I think they must be committed to using the Michelins at Le Mans as well. So, you know, if they've stuck with that decision, they might, they might have to get good. Otherwise, they're going to be off the pace at Le Mans. 
um, get good. Get good. Yeah. But yeah, in All the right. end, it was the same uh, three cars on the podium, I think, than, than what we saw at Shanghai as well. So it looks like we've got a, a cream rising to the top situation with the two JCDC Jota Sport cars and United Autosports really beginning to stre- stretch their lead at the top of the championship. And it speaks to the strength of the uh, the class too. When we're talking about the woes of uh, Alpine and of uh, G Drive, just because I don't think that they're not, I think they're doing that badly. To be honest, they're just uh, they're just getting outperformed right now by three to four other teams that were right there behind them. But they've you know those two cars have been consistently faster than the rest of the field. But for some reason this year the field has caught up. So yeah. Um, Not I, just I wouldn't be up, surprised if but, yeah I've caught up and surpassed him. Mm. And you wouldn't be surprised if well if they if they show up and dominate a, a race. I mean, go show up to Spa for six hours and and, and run run the table, especially G Drive having had experience doing kind of the double header uh, with the EMS and WC uh, rounds there pretty much yearly for a while now, um, or even going to Sebring and seeing uh, Alpine run run the tables on that one either so i think they've got the capacity for it um i just think right now yeah they're just the overall pace is just getting dominated by the uh, by a field that is like you said completely overpassing mm. um with the results uh for the Bahrain eight hours because an eight hour race actually carried 1.5 times the amount of points um so that means that the point situation in lmp2 uh, has almost flipped on its head. Uh, so JCDC, the number 37 car, leads by virtue of not having a DNF so far this season. Um, it's had two second, well, three second places now consecutively, so they now lead the championship by three points over the United Autosports car with that win taking them from, uh, basically recovering from their uh, big old zero at the first round of the championship. And then it's another three points to the racing team Netherlands car of all teams. I uh, remember they had that race win at Fuji. Um, and then it is another three points back, four points back, sorry, uh, the Jota Sport car who had the zero at Fuji instead. So the, it's pretty tight at the top. And then you start to get the, the drop off of the rest of the field. So how, how do we... How do we see the LMP2 championship panning out from here? Are we going to see a three, three-way race at the top, or do you think one team is going to stretch away, or do you think we're going to get a, a big old group fracas towards the end of the season? Uh, I, I, it's so hard to, to tell trends with, uh, with what we have right now in the championship because the LMP2 team uh, field is just so stacked with teams that have the ability to just run away with any race. It's hard to say... Yeah, I think you know. I think I think we'll just continue to see the podium podium again and just rearrange the order. Um, but I, I I do think it's likely. I I think there are trends that we're seeing already. You know, we're almost if we're not halfway, we are close to halfway yet with the with the championship, or just past halfway. We're, um, we're halfway in terms of rounds complete, but not halfway in terms of time of racing or right. points okay. to pay. So, because we've got Sebring and Le Mans who pay 1.5 times points, we do have more points left in the back half of the season. Okay. But yeah, I mean, um, I I would be shocked, I guess, if if, uh, if this podium doesn't kind of run close to themselves uh, at, at the front of the LMP2 field for most of the rest of the season. Uh, especially just with how consistent 
the uh, United Auto Sports team has been. They've looked like a championship winning squad so far. Um, and same with uh, Joda as well. I think we've seen that, especially with Anthony Davidson. I think he's driving very, very, very well mm. um, in kind of more of a non-factory relaxed mode, kind of how we saw Lapierre drive. Yeah, it seems like it seems like Davidson has a new lease of life in LMP2 now. He, he, he seems like a different driver all over again. Yeah, and I, I think he's always had that talent there, and I think he... He missed his opportunity in F one to to showcase that on a grander stage, but I mean he's he's had the fortune misfortune of, of driving for Toyota's factory mm. squad for a lot of woeful years, and you know now he's kind of he wanted to take a step back, and I think he's doing a very very good job, and I think he's doing a like the way that I I think that that team is uh, is being consistent with his driving is uh is a championship winning one as well so my point being hard to tell but i could absolutely see one to two of these these uh going all the way the way maybe seeing jcdc fall off and maybe seeing netherland come back you know maybe mm-hmm. something like that but all of these teams have been racing really well so far this the first part of the season yeah and just a a, a sidebar note on uh jcdc um, their AM driver, Gabriel Albury, is actually being elevated to bronze next year. Uh, sorry, elevated to gold. So they're, uh, so he's going from silver to gold next year. So that means he'll still race as the AM for JCDC for the rest of this season. But come the 2020 season after Le Mans, 2020-2021, he will no longer be able to fill that AM requirement for that team. So uh, he's pretty much acting as a super silver at the moment. Um to be fair, you could also call Phil Hansen a silver, a super silver. Um, so yeah, that is uh, another aspect to play into that. Um, I actually pretty well agree. I think it's uh, becoming a three horse race between the two Jota Jackie Jan- Jackie Chan DC cars and United Autosports, and I wouldn't be surprised to see them break away uh, over the next few rounds. Cool, cool. Uh, we'll move on to GT. E Pro, which for me was the class of the race. Uh, we had strategy differences early on. We had battles on track. We had reliability problems as well, which really, you don't see a lot of reliability problems in GTE anymore, but we had them. And it turned into basically a, a full out brawl towards the end between Aston Martin and Ferrari, uh, in which the Aston Martin guys came out on top. Yeah, some interesting strategy that you saw in the in the race where kind of an apparent split strategy move during a four course yellow. You kind of got oh, are you know we're trying to see GTE Pro teams take any advantage they possibly can. Um, I, I think Aston Martin come out later saying that it was more or less due to tire wear, but um, real really that car has been fast all year and it, it, it's shown its pace, especially on uh, front straights, uh, high speed straights and some corners as well that it, it is able to react very very quickly uh when it is able to go into the pits that kind of thing get tire changes whatnot um it's in and out laps are very very quick so i think we saw a little bit more of that and again throughout an eight hour race you could just see the strengths of that of that team kind of come through even when you had a lot of you know dodging almost kind of reliability rows from other uh other cars in the class so 
Yeah, so that strategy call that they made was to basically undercut in the first stint, uh, so to get track position early on, and then using their their quicker speed down the straights kind of nullify the effect of uh, or nullify the attempts of the other cars to pass them. There was a cracking battle between them, uh, the '95 car especially, and the Porsches in the early half of the race. Um, and then, on the other hand, it was the 95 and the 97 versus the Ferraris in the second half of the race. But I think the important thing for Aston Martin was when it was quick when it counted. So in the in the last part of the race, when they were uh, under lights and the cooler conditions, it seemed that the cars really, really switched on. And if you look at the, the lap time traces, uh, when you get the opportunity to, you can see that especially the 97 was just so much quicker in the latter half of the race compared to the rest of the class, to the tune of maybe... So much quicker, I'm saying, maybe a full tenth of a second compared to everyone else who were in one big old clump. But they ended up finishing third. Did the 97, did they have a drive-through penalty or some other delay? Because um, I'm trying to, I, I'm struggling to figure out what happened to them for them to drop to third. Do you remember off the top of your head? Does anyone in chat remember off the top of their head what happened to the Aston Martin number 97? Not that I can recall no. any issue. No, I mean, okay. Because I... I can't remember either. So it was it was the ninety five that took uh took the victory. Um, and they were they were they were the ones who made the undercut. But I want to talk about I want to talk about Porsche because in the early stages of the race, Porsche were the cars to beat. They managed to overhaul the Aston Martin eventually and started to stretch away a lead at the top. But then both of them failed, or both of them suffered failures within about 20 minutes of each other so they they basically took themselves out of the race they were this is the first reliability problem we've seen in gte pro since maybe 2017 the first race is 2017 when the the new porsche barbecued itself could be something like, like that can you can you recall reliability issues Oh, like maybe BMW with their electronic glitches over the last season. Yeah, Le Mans too has mm. has had a little bit come up with Ferrari, I think. Um, but yeah, the the ninety five I think was on a uh, yeah you're right with the undercut, and they were definitely just on a more aggressive strategy throughout the whole thing. But uh, what really kind of helped them get the win was the that uh, stop and go penalty on the Ferrari. Yeah, um, and that was for spinning the wheels in the pit stop the last pit stop yeah because yeah. you it, so go ahead yeah yeah i mean yeah that I'm, i I don't know if you have anything teed up for that but that uh that's one of those penalties that's definitely going to draw the the ire of certain fans so um but yeah it's it's a safety thing it's the same thing of why that they don't allow more than four people across that large yellow strip or white strip of, of line in the in the paddock too mm. so um it's it's really tough because that's kind of cool and awesome. And, uh, but hey, that's part of this West Racing. Same reason why you shut the car off and turn it back on again, too. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, it's very different to the way that they do it, say, in American sports cars, where you have the pit wall and you just rip burnouts out of the pit lane because you can and because that's quick. But it is a safety concern, I, at least in my opinion. And honestly, the way that they do pit stops in America, I, I find terrifying. Like, I would not feel comfortable being in that position personally. 
Um, but yeah, so Ferrari got a penalty, uh, which kind of took them out of the battle for the lead of the race. It was building up to a really climactic finish. And so I want to kind of throw this question out here. Has, has the fastest car in a race taken a win yet this season in GTE Pro? Wow, that that sounds like a weirdly specific question. I'm going to say no. <laughs> yeah, it's it's been kind of kind of weird how that's worked out because you know, the fastest car at Silverstone was definitely the Ferrari. Fuji, it was a toss-up between Ferrari and Aston. I think maybe Fuji you could argue that the Aston was the fastest car and they took a win there. Yeah. Yeah, I'd yeah. say that too. And then Shanghai was definitely the Aston Martin. They had the tire blowout and uh, Ferrari, no, actually Porsche won that race. And then here you'd maybe say Porsche were the strongest car in the first hour, well, the first half, then Ferrari in the second half, but Aston Martin took the win. It's been an all over the shop sort of season in GTE Pro and I freaking love it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, with the uh, with the newer cars, the experience of the new-ish cars, the uh, the, the old kind of evolutions with the older stuff, it's just been, it's been an awesome GT Pro season in which we kind of thought with the exit of Ford, all right, hey, is this, you know, what does this mean? Is hmm. this going to, you know, is this going to affect any of the racing on track? Not really, not at all. And yeah, you're, you're right too, how there has been a chassis that had a strength like almost from all the makes that had their, you know, time in the spotlight for a decent amount of, uh, throughout the race. And I think that also speaks to how close the BOP is and how, you know, dead on everything is and how, and again, how quiet the conversation is about the BOP. I don't think, uh, we, there has been any, uh, non-disclosure agreement for gte team uh, gt pro teams to talk about bop while hypercar is going on or anything like that if there was an issue or they were getting upset about where they're at bop wise we'd be hearing a lot mm. about it and i just haven't been hearing a whole lot of issues coming it's, from anybody it's been crickets from gte pro this season like and as i said uh, earlier in this segment well, I was talking about a massive gap between the 95 and, oh, sorry, the 97 and the rest of the field uh, in terms of lap speed. It was less than a tenth of a second. The entire field in GTE Pro is encapsulated within a tenth, two tenths of a second. So it's just, it's phenomenal how spot on the WEC GTE Pro balance of performance is at the moment. Uh, and it's produced some fantastic racing this season so far. Um, and the as a result, it's been a topsy-turvy season. And with Porsche's double problem this week, uh, this event, they've actually dropped out of the manufacturer's lead uh, in the championship. And we were talking about them having an almost insurmountable gap already, but it only took one race, one double or 1.5 times point race for them to drop it was it was 30, 34 points uh, that they dropped versus Aston Martin in that race uh, at Bahrain. So they've gone from something like twenty something points ahead to ten points behind in one event. Now that's that's just that's just crazy to to have that heavy a swing in a single event, don't you reckon? Yeah, and that's just the state right now that we're at in the GT Pro. And I feel like we're a broken record saying that almost every year for the last like four years, but it's pretty much bang on. And especially with the auto BOP, for as much concern as I and some others had initially of how that was going to shake out, 
um, it's worked out really, really, really well. And beyond, you know, I, I think Lamont being its own beast and IMSA having their own problems, BOPing cars for Daytona, they're just, it, it, I think that's always going to be kind of the elephant in the room with, with BOP, but I think this is where a lot of people are, especially inside the IMSA and WC camps are uh, hopeful that they can come to a convergence with these top classes because they can see the ability for BOP to be very, very successful and to be very, very accurate mm. uh, what we have in GT Pro. And I think that that's been highlighted over and over and over again too, especially when, with four and other uh, teams going, hey, we, we should just take GT Pros and make those the, the top class. Da, 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 da. Like the interest is there to see what we had, you know, at Le Mans the last few years, which is just GTE Pro trains for like the hours. like P1 hours to P6 and hours, hours, and hours and hours and hours, but that's now overall. Yeah. So I think that's where the incentive is coming also too to go, well, we could totally do this. We could absolutely BOP whatever they bring over from America and we can BOP all of these things, whether they just do this or that at least the lap time is equates to be the same over the entire stint length and they have their advantages are, are limited. So that's, that's what I see out of this. And I thought that race, this race specifically showcased that uh, because you did see even track temperature and track differentiation come into play with, um, or uh, as I say track time or like whatever mm. time differentiation play a, a factor into the pace of some of these GT cars. So yeah, exactly. Really I, cool. The pro. Yeah. And I think, when you get to a, a class that is so close in terms of outright pace in BOP, it's those attention to details, those one percenters that really can win or lose your race. And that's where I think Aston Martin won this race. Their strategy call early on to undercut the field, use their superior straight line speed, and then run the tyres longer in the latter half of the race where they had uh where it was a bit cooler and they could manage those tires more effectively i think that was what won won them the race and that's a a very much a one percenter type call and admittedly they got a little help from the 71 getting that penalty and the problems that the 51 had uh with curb strikes and the problems that uh porsche had with the dampers in in their car both failing within a lap of each other uh they did get a little help but still they had to go out and execute and they did and that's just has been typical of the way that GTE Pro races have been won this season and it's been awesome and I love it and I love GTE Pro it's fantastic <laughs> yeah even though Porsches did not have a good race yeah that was I uh, was a bit maddening for me they were looking on the cards for something amazing and then the cars just broke and it made me really sad and just sorry anyway um at least we'll in talk G- about Porsche victory yeah we'll talk at, about another Porsche at least in GTEM they they stomped the field uh and uh talking GTM it was basically all about one man in GTM and that was Ben Keating he was phenomenal in the first stint uh, first well not the first stint the first triple stint of the race in the team project 1 number 57 car from pole position he marshaled the first into the race built up a massive gap on the rest of the field cut out a pit stop as well because he had the luxury of pro pace in as an am driver and they cruised to victory 35 seconds ahead of the rest of the field uh with absolutely zero zero threat behind them they were just untouchable and it was off the back of of ben keating's triple stint to start the race really and that's the story of GTM. We can move on now. 
I mean, the way that it turned out, yeah. And it's telling that in in this era of BOP and GT racing and all this other stuff, especially in the AM category, that we're seeing like the ability for teams to utilize almost like a hot hand driver and Keating is just on absolute fire. So mm. he's doing these Ironman stints. They're like leaving him and do this stuff. They're having him try to do double stints, triple stints, this kind of stuff where like it's unorthodox, but it's working and he's able to maintain the pace. If not put in really, really good pace and just set up whatever team he's driving for, whatever chassis he's in uh, a really good result. And uh, I mean, you almost kind of could see it coming and it, it driver of the race for sure. But that's why I've just been saying he's been driver of the year because he, the effect I've had, I felt just watching him drive this year is he gets in the car and I just feel confident that he's going to put in what is absolutely necessary at bar, bar minimum. If not, he's, he's going to put in a cool stint and he's going to be impressing people. And he's been doing that all year mm, in and- different kinds of chassis. It's been really, really awesome to watch and i just can't believe that you know no one else is able to really replicate this it's just kind of almost been the ben keating show this year in uh in gt it really uh, has it, it really has and we're talking we're not just talking this season in wec we're talking le mans in the ford gt where remember he held off Jörg bergmeister for a stint in that race like, regardless of whatever happened post-race with the, the disqualification, he held off one of the pro- Porsche factory drivers for a stint as a bronze driver. That is phenomenal. We've seen it in the IMSA series, where he's put in some hero stints in that Riley, uh, that Mercedes-AMG. Unfortunately, this season hasn't really worked out for him for that. he His car ran into a bunch of just dumb incidents that really they shouldn't have been involved in. But yeah, it's the Keating condition really that he just gets in, puts in the absolute maximum you can get from a bronze, and then you can. You, the reason that they saved a stint, uh, sorry, saved a pit stop, because the 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 minimum drive time in GTM was two hours and twenty minutes. The the reason they saved a stop was because they left Keating in for a full third stint. They left him in for three hours. No other team left their bronze driver in for three hours, but. They had the luxury of doing that because Keating was a second a lap faster than any other bronze driver at any point in time. That is ridiculous. That is ridiculous. Like, that shouldn't be possible. And if 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 Keating was 20 years younger, he'd be elevated to gold so quickly <laughs> because of that. But it's just, it's phenomenal how consistent his lap trace was and how much pace he was able to extract out of that Porsche. To, and for the team to be able to have the luxury to say, you can do a triple stint, you're a bronze driver doing a triple stint and not get pulled out of the car before the end of his stint. It was just, it was a phenomenal, it was easily by far and away driver of the race for me. Man, he's just got. He has a ton of confidence right now behind mm. the wheel, and you could just you could just tell that uh, he's not making a lot of mistakes. Um, his lap times are consistent, and they're just fast. And I mean, uh, we saw that a little bit from like you know uh, Heinemeyer Hansen a little bit in, without more or less prototype in you know, P two, yeah. right? And where you kind of almost where the light switch hits. But for him, it was pretty quickly. I mean, I, whenever I remember DHH kind of stepping up, he was always pretty quick. Like, he kind of understood what was going on. 
and it was just a lack of <clears throat> just drive time that kept him doing a lot of silvers and that kind of thing. But yeah, with with Ben, it's just like I, <clears throat> it just seems like the last like two years he's just kind of figured it out and has just been able to light the pace up. Whether he's in a GT three car, GTE car, anything like that, it's incredible. Yeah, it's just. Driver of the race, easily. Ben Keating, 100%. Don't need to ask any more questions. Um, but the rest of the class, we should talk about the rest of the class. And finally, a good result for the number 98 car. Finally, they don't get taken out on the first lap. And finally, they put in a good result. Uh, PDL anchoring that team to a second place finish for them, uh, which was pretty exciting. And a, a bit of a surprise for me... Uh, and I think around the paddock as well, third place, Golf Racing, the number 86 car, uh, Wainwright Watson and Ben Barker coming home uh, pretty comfortably in third place uh, for their, I think that's their debut podium in GTEM for the WEC. So that's extremely impressive uh, from from that trio of drivers. And uh, I think they also said that they're going to be doing the rest of the season too. So good yep. news to hear from them, especially since the Golf sponsorship kind of is no longer mistake. a thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's not, it's not there. So really good news is to hear them be able to stay on with the championship um, with this awesome podium for them too. So yeah. Yeah. Really good uh, from that outing. Um, yeah. I would almost kind of go back and almost flip it to you and just kind of go. Some of the people on the bottom here um, shouldn't be on the bottom for GTM. Yeah. Opinion. Yeah, the the likes of the number 56 Team Project 1 car, uh, yep. I'm pretty sure they had a problem. They were 15 laps down on the tail of the field. Um, what was their problem that they had? Oh, I can't remember off the top of my head, but they must have had an issue. Um, TF oh, they had, Sport too. Yeah, TF Sport. TF Sport became F Sport. Uh, they, <laughs> I, I think they also encountered a gearbox issue. Something like that, but they um they lost they lost out completely. So they got a DNF. They got a big fat zero um next to their name, which I think actually loses them first place in the championship. Yes, it does. So they're now uh fifteen points away from the head of the championship, um which is now being uh contested by the number fifty seven car that just won the race and the number eighty three A of Corsa car. So they're tied together on seventy three points, and then you have to take a big step down to see the two Aston Martins on 60 and a half points and uh, 58 points. So yeah, very, uh, very uh, bad result for TF Sport uh, in terms of their championship hopes. Um, and then I think the the other one that has been surprising this season is Dempsey Proton Racing is just nowhere compared to where they were last year. Yep. They, they seem to be uh, struggling a lot uh, and it it just kind of almost been like a light like a light switch uh, with them, and they've just kind of seemed to be lost at times. Uh, DNF for the eighty eight and the seventy seven kind of finishing mid pack. It's just not really gone well for them this year. And it's it, is it another case of kind of what we saw with LMP two with other teams just kind of stepping their game up uh, considerably and just completely blowing their doors off? Maybe, but um, you know that's that's a pretty solid mainstay competitive team in GTM to to kind of see this amount of struggle this late I'd say into the season I think it's uh the the super silver problem that is is G, uh, is the number 77's uh issue so last year they had um 
Porsche Junior, uh, like the Porsche Super Cup podium getter, whatever, whatever, Julian Anlauer as their silver driver in that car, along with Christian Lee, uh, Christian Reed, and uh, Matt Campbell as the pro. Now, Julian Anlauer, extremely unsurprisingly, got elevated to gold because he's a freaking maniac. But if you look at the silver driver that they've got now, Ricardo Pera, he doesn't have the same pace as the other silvers in that car, class. The other super silvers in that class, let's be fair. You know, the likes of Nicholas Hughes, uh, Nielsen, Kay Cozzolino, and uh, the Aston Martin factory drivers in uh, Charlie Eastwood and Ross Gunn. He is not at that same level of pace compared to those drivers and it's you can clearly see that on the on the lap time traces when you are able to get a look at them he's a full second away from those other drivers so maybe it's the other teams out protoning the proton car (laughs) that's 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 yeah been the cause of their demise no it could be yeah for sure (laughs) because if you think about Um, it like what what silver drivers do Porsche have at the moment that are coming through the ranks? Like the one, the the last uh, like swing that we had was Matt Campbell, Julian Anlauer, uh, Matteo Cairoli, uh, and you know Giorgio Rota, who have all progressed onto a gold ranking. Uh, they don't really have, for the first time in a long time, a a new fresh batch of extremely good young talent coming through the team at the moment. Because well, do they need to at this point? Well, I mean, you, you you want GTM the talent to do well in these cars. Like my my point being is that Porsche could just put a lot of their uh, um, legit uh, factory development drivers in some more meaningful races, like in GT three, yep. that kind of thing, where they're not necessarily dedicating them to full season efforts or partial season efforts in WC. That could be it, or it could just be that the talent of the field right now. Just isn't able to match up with what uh, with what they're needing and with some of these setups. And again, it's all about neutral balance. Yep. These cars are highly BOP'd, so you have to kind of be able to maintain these uh, consistent lap times. And if one is off, you know, it's so hard to hit that balance and to consistently do that for eight hours. You're definitely going to see some problems, especially when it's a tilt track. As much as I do love these these tracks, like. They hit everything. Yeah. They hit ev- absolutely every aspect of a car. They they do, but there's something to be said about like how the track is. Like I, I don't ever feel like these are getting hit. Well, I can't say that because there's been a lot of reliability this past race. But um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, there's just there's something about this track that I, I just feel isn't pushing these cars to its their limits. Really? But yeah. Maybe maybe just, it's that's the, just an opinion. Maybe it's the the innate focus on tire wear because of how abrasive the track surface is. Maybe because they have to be so careful with the tires that they they don't really push the limits of everything else, which I think may have an element of truth to it. But yeah, I I'm just more surprised that they've been so on the, the number seventy seven specifically has been so anonymous this year. It's been kind of yeah. kind of crazy that they're they're full uh they're full from the top of the field. At least it's been uh impacted by well sorry at least it's been offset by other porsche teams coming to the front like team project one and golf racing to be honest golf racing like i i feel like i should i should emphasize 
when when Mike Wainwright first came to the class, I was extremely critical of his driving standards and his pace uh, in that uh, 911 RSR, the 2015 model, um, to the point where it became a bit of a meme. And I will 100% put my hand up about that. Um, I feel like I have to go back and say Wainwright has actually been very impressive this season in this iteration of the 911, the kind of mid-rear engine 911 RSR that we have now. He has been much closer on pace to the other bronzes and that may be due in part to more experience in the class, uh, having to be passed by prototypes and not losing pace, um, and also the team that he's been able to build around him. But he was actually impressive and has been actually impressive for the past few races. So I feel like I have to put my hand up and say the bias that I've given people around Mike Wainwright may not actually be as applicable as it has been anymore. <laughs> So that's very big of you. It's very big of you. Yeah, I, I, I feel like I, I've, I've made a big step here. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank, thank you for, uh, for attending uh, this breakthrough. So yeah, I, 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 it feels good to finally get that out. Finally admit that. <laughs> yep. Yeah. There you go. There you go, man. Yeah. So yeah, GTM. It was the. It was really just the Keating show. He's he bought that team. He gave them an insurmountable advantage. They now lead the championship alongside AF Corsa. They have less ballast as well, because remember, GTE AM is now a ballast class. Um, so I think they will have... Uh, if it's the same as ELMS, they'll have 20... 30 kilos of weight next time around, maybe? Um, alongside the AF Corsa number 83 car, which was surprisingly struggling um, compared to where they were. So they lead the championship. They got a significant gap of about 13 points over the pair of Aston Martins. And then it is MR Racing, Golf Racing, and then Dempsey Proton in seventh. So the 77 car in seventh. And AF Corsa Team Project 1, the uh, 56 Perfetti Hanemeyer Hansen Bergmeister car in ninth place in the championship, Red River Sport, and the 88 car, the revolving door of drivers, down in last place in the championship. And that is the eight hours of Bahrain, unless you had anything else you wanted to add to it. No. No? Uh, I I found a hilarious anecdote, not not anecdote, I guess, but just a a side note to the race that uh, GTE drivers were approaching Toyota to ask (laughs) what best way to overtake them during the straights. I found that to be kind of funny. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty funny. So, yeah, that's that's that is kind of the state we're at in uh, in 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 sports car racing. <laughs> well, but like you, um, you say that, and you look at the lap times, and the Toyotas are still f- f- 17, 18, 19 seconds yeah. a lap faster. So yeah. the 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 it's way physics, that, baby, it is physics. It is. I mean, I would love for them them to do about three hundred twenty miles an hour, which I feel is they could, they're just capable of doing it, but. We we don't have the tracks to do that stuff, so we kind of have to limit their performance as they get to a certain speed. And these GT cars are just getting so damn fast that the the performance gap is just not becoming a gap anymore. In in some cases, and clearly with even GTE AMs, they're they're having like you're getting bronzes that are <laughs> basically overtaking platinum like factory uh, prototype hybrids. Like, That's nuts. hilarious. That is real yeah. funny. Yeah, it's kind of it's a little brain breaking to be honest, but uh, yeah, that is where we are at the moment. Wonder what will happen with with hypercar, whether or not they'll be as fast in a straight line, and whether or not we we encounter GT cars interrupting hypercar races because we kind of get that in 
ELMS, the the GT field and the LMP3 field are so closely overlapped in pace, especially with the AM drivers in the GT3 field. Oh, sorry, the LMP3 field. That more often than not, you see the GT cars finishing ahead of the P3 field. So I wonder if we end up with a situation wherein uh, there it is it becomes prohibitively difficult to pass the GT cars in a hypercar. It'll be interesting. Well, on certain sections, it's definitely difficult to do it anyway if it's single lane. But yeah, Mm. I mean, if you only have a couple opportunities to do it, are you going to have to have a conversation with some of these uh, GT teams that are that are kind of under the the understanding that it's best for everybody to let them go, you know, to back off, even if they are so close? I mean, it is it's going to be interesting. I doubt it. Um, from what I've always seen, the GT Pro drivers always like to stick it to the LMP1 drivers whenever possible. I mean, to the point of, you know, not hurting themselves or hurting the equipment or getting a penalty, but just like, hey, I mean, look, if they're battling for position or if they don't have that pace there, they're usually not giving all that that much uh, of an inch. You'll see that in GTM. So, mm. Maybe we'll 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 get to a scenario, but I I don't know. I I think that what they're going to do with the adjustments with it, uh, this won't be as big of a deal as I think some some will because it, it it's just a natural thing that happens with these hybrid cars. They they get to a top speed that is much much less than what we could get to with GT cars, and no one wants to see a GT nerf. That's for some true. Reason. I don't know why, but no one wants to see these cars go any slower even though they keep going faster and faster and faster and faster. So, it's because the action whatever. is just so good. It's just... Yeah, but if... Yeah, but the, you, can, you can have the same amount of action, but just like at a second or two slower at Le Mans, it doesn't have to be that fast. Same yeah, with yeah. LP2s. I don't know why everybody's just infatuated with going as fast as humanly possible. Because everyone's like, got the need, the need for speed. Yeah, but then you have you then you have a bad accident, and then and then and then we have to have a discussion about whether or not we're supposed to even be there in the first place, and blah blah blah. And I just do we unless we can figure out a way for no one to get injured ever in accidents. Like we we, we can't seem to get, we can't break that speed barrier that yeah. is like two hundred x whatever miles an hour top speed. So yeah, look, fortunately, like I totally agree. Yeah, GTs just have a way of doing it very very efficiently nowadays than they did in the past. So. Yeah, well, it, like even the pace, the pace creep in GT th- GTE has been kind of nuts in the past few seasons. Like mm-hmm. I remember in my first my first year of properly watching Le Mans, uh, you know, a, a lap time of four oh two was impressive in the GTE class for qualifying. Now they're consistently in the mid three fifties um, for for qualifying, and that's that's a massive pace increase, and that's just through engineering really um you know the drivers haven't really changed that much so yeah it's kind of it's kind of nuts how the pace creep has happened across all classes really like remember it would have been 10 years ago we were talking about a three a 327 being a pole lap for lmp1 and now we're what this year's pole was a 317 or 314 or something mental um and you know lmp2 were running the fastest non-hybrid laps at Le Mans ever, um, except for the privateers. They were running faster than the LMP1 class of 2011. It's it, the, the pace creep that we have had at Le Mans in the past few years has been amazing to witness, but also needs to be, it need, needs to be halted. Yeah, it was unsustainable. I mean, 
I mean, it is unsustainable right now because there is no real like slowdown of that. There's a BOP process that really just continuously tries to adjust, but it's it's uh you know its target performance vehicle is another vehicle that is getting updated constantly. Mm. So that that target speed kind of always just keeps getting moved down. You know the you know the beach every single time that lines draw in the sand. So I, I don't really see where it gets stopped yet. And yeah. You, everybody's right. It will creep onto. I mean, if you try to adjust one of these things, it's going to hit onto another series yeah. that is doing something very similar. And yeah, that's why there should be an overall like coming to Jesus moment with this, where we go, "Hey, look, this will be unsustainable." We're we're bumping up against prototype speeds, and I mean, it, should we be allowing these kind of drivers to be hitting these kind of speeds anyway, regardless? I mean, are they more qualified than they were ten years ago? Are you, are the safety Arguably, measures yeah. yeah you know so like are the safety measures on on these cars good enough to compensate for the extra increase of speed blah, blah blah like i don't know doesn't seem like it to me but um i don't know we we just we're really infatuated right now with, with pushing that so we get like uh, lmp2 lap record lmp2 race record that kind of thing so yeah it, um, it's almost as if we need to kind of hit the reset button and go back to where we were in terms of lap time 10 years ago and then take however long it's take it'll take to come back up to that this current speed because current speed is beginning to get a little scary yeah but again there there's a perceived amount of interest that the casual fan or a fan would have on the sport if it's not being able to push it and it being able to say a fast lap time whatever blah, blah blah average lap time uh, breaking records that way is an easy way to sell the sport yeah. in, in that manner. And, you know, will that have an effect if you are going, you, you are essentially going, we have the ability and technology and understanding to go faster. We choose not to. And how does that get perceived from race fans who absolutely don't want that and would more or less have unlimited regulations nothing make sure there's a gas tank and a seat and an engine and that's it and you know there's a justification for wanting something like that and this is in the complete opposite direction of that but i think it's well, a it's a necessary evil that we're in right now you have to do this well it's so. not it's not new it, it, pegging pegging cars back pegging regulations back is not a new thing right like we saw it many times through the lmp1 era i think in 2011 they reduced the capacity of the diesel engines from 500 liters to three liters or something whatever it was because the the what the audi r15 and the original peugeot peugeot 908 had 5.5 liter engines and then they went to 3.6 liter engines and had to slow them all down and then you know before that they well, even even in the hybrid era, they took away aerodynamics, they took away battery capacity, they took away power, and the cars still managed to go faster. And in the past, they've taken away this and that, and cars still managed to go faster. So it's not new to, to slow the cars down at Le Mans. Um, but I think the point is now that everything's getting so much faster. And as uh, as someone said in the chat, as, um, uh, as Team Thunderhawk has said in the chat, if if the GT cars were only two seconds slower, they'd be on GT three place, and that's exactly right. Like the the pace of GT racing around the world has has exploded to the point where 
we have such convergence of lap speed towards what is getting towards the absolute maximum that a GT car can do around a circuit like Le Mans or even other circuits around the world that we we kind of have to collectively take a step back and go we need to we need to kind of peg things back a bit but yeah and that and that's and as i said that's not a new concept in racing and at Le Mans it's just yeah how far can you peg things back before it starts to affect the racing product yeah, exactly. But I, I just think there, there's a physics physics aspect mm. to it that you just can't. We're, we're hitting that barrier, and we're seeing where the ACO isn't allowing such a breathable gap. Where you, you know, in, in past they go, oh, okay, there's a little bit of a gap. Okay, well, let's just allow the LMP1 to get a little bit faster here, and we'll peg it back this other way. Mm. It just it seems that there's only so much that the ACO or FA want to do, and we're seeing this overlap that seems to not be fixable yet. They're just kind of it, letting it be a necessary evil, which is an interesting departure from what I'm used to seeing how the ACO combat this kind of a, a thing. Because this is a kind of just a byproduct of of the racing and the different types of machinery racing against each other, mm. which I think is fine. I think it's is a unique challenge that like is awkward and interesting and slightly difficult, but it's completely unique and it's something that. Um, it's, it's a differentiation that's your part so why not yeah like how good is multi-class racing i love it i think it's the greatest uh randomizer dynamic uh unknown factor in uh motorsport yeah if they wanted to spice up f1 just run an f2 grid as well right f and f3 why not make make <laughs> a make a three-hour f1 race and then oh. have two uh uh, two other classes race alongside of it. That actually sounds a little terrifying. I am so on board. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I I feel like we should should move on from uh from the uh, eight hours of Bahrain and general uh WC haberdashery to talk about next season's calendar, which was announced at the on the Friday of the WC eight hours of Bahrain weekend. Um, we have a new calendar for next season. We have a few races that have been cut out. We have a new location for the preseason test. We have a returning, uh, race to the season and a brand new race for the season, uh, next season. So we should definitely talk about the calendar. Um, so first off, uh, the preseason tests will be held at Silverstone, uh, which is also going to be, again, the first round of the season in a doubleheader with the ELMS. Interestingly, the uh, ELMS race will be on the Sunday with the WC race on the Saturday uh, for that doubleheader weekend. So that's a bit of a weird one, I think. Um, also, the uh, the Silverstone race and all the other races in the season have a minimum of six hours. So that's, uh, that's pretty... Uh, pretty interesting after we've had the two four-hour races this season uh we return to monza for the first time since the intercontinental le mans cup i think or the intercontinental le mans challenge or whatever it was called um so for the first time in quite a few years the wc is going back to monza uh fuji returns eight hours of bahrain returns and then we have a brand new round for the WEC, the six hours of Kyalami in South Africa, uh, already onto the calendar after its 
uh, successful return to top-level racing with the international uh, Intercontinental GT Challenge race earlier this year, South Africa in the WEC. That is going to be an awesome weekend. Um, and then uh, 1,000 miles of Sebring, 8 hours, uh, 6 hours of Spa-Francorchamps, and then, of course, Le Mans. Uh, and that is your 2021 season. How do we feel about the changes uh, to the season? No more Shanghai, no Sao Paulo or Kota. Uh, introduction of Monza, introduction of Kyle Army. How, how do you rate those changes? Um, good. Uh, I think they are to be expected, I guess, from what we've been hearing kind of a little bit from Shanghai and unfortunately Sao Paulo. Um that uh, the tenants wasn't where Shanghai wanted to be at. I think uh, marketing and advertisement hasn't been really yet what WC was wanting. Yep. Um, and it was clear that uh, OEMs were trying, uh, including Corvette and whatnot, to try to, to reach that market. And that's been the theme over the last decade from a lot of uh, Western uh, corporations and companies wanting to really activate in the Chinese market. So... The WC is uh, moving away from that I, I, for a number of reasons, I guess. But that that was definitely clear that while there was fans there, there China doesn't ever seem to do things the way that you would ever expect them to, and uh, including a lot of different things that I disagree with them about. But um, yeah, that was definitely telling. It was almost kind of like a, all right, well, they definitely have the money to continue pushing it, but We've travel, had enough. That kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they look to be enough. And then the South Paulo is just, unfortunately, that's just what it is with that. So, but the replacements, I think, are awesome. Uh, Monza is what I remember fondly from the ILMC days, um, or ILMS days, I think, ILMC, uh, and having Peugeot, Audi, and some of the Arecas battle each other there before Le Mans. That was usually the primer for Le Mans. Um, way back in the day before mm. Spa was uh, was that she had like a four-hour race there usually at, at uh, either Imola or at Monza. But usually that Monza race was great. So we're looking forward to that. And then Kailami put on an excellent show for GT3 uh, racing. And I thought the new track was awesome when it comes to just different sweeping corners, good overtaking spots, long straights, um, and good elevation. I really like mm. it. So. It should be great. You know, it's one step closer to having a complete international championship. Yeah, it's almost it. Yeah, it's almost hitting now all the different continents around the world. Um, I I was actually quite surprised that they actually removed Shanghai from the the calendar. Um, I I would have thought that the commercial interest would have been enough to sustain the series going to Shanghai. Um, I mean, I'm not annoyed about that. I didn't really enjoy the racing at Shanghai, and uh, it's not one of my favorite tracks and uh, everything else that comes with the the Shanghai race. But I was I was surprised. Maybe it comes with, along with the downsides of, you know, there's no uh, Chinese investment into the LMP1 class anymore or into LMP2. The Jackie Chan DC is reducing its... Uh, you know, impact in LMP2, you know, going down to one sponsored car and there's not really uh, that many Chinese drivers in the GT field as well. So I can maybe, maybe see that. But yeah, I was, I was quite surprised to see the commercial arrangements not be uh, maintained. And yeah, as I said, I'm not mad about that because I freaking love the replacements. Like Monza, Monza for WEC is just going to be nutty. It's going to be great. Um, and, and Kyle Army, I am, 
I'm really surprised that they got Kyle Army onto the WEC uh, calendar so quickly. I, I would have thought it would have been maybe another season or two away, but obviously they put on a great show with the IGTC race there, uh, and that there must have been something in that that told the WEC that they had to bring bring the bring the series there. Yeah, the uh, FIACO executives seem to be impressed that, uh, or most of the executives that did show up there were pretty impressed with how the facility was, and it looked like it was in good shape. It looked like it was what you would want to uh, a circuit to look in while it tries to showcase to uh, uh, the international kind of uh, international championship like the FIA. So, um, and uh, uh, with sports cars specific history with this track too, I, I couldn't be happier um, because it has. Uh, there there aren't a ton of tracks, I guess, that F1 hasn't disgraced. So there's always that F1 overlap. But yep. uh, sports cars have been to Kailami uh, quite a bit and frequented it in a lot of its good golden years in the Group C days. So I think there's a lot of good uh, equity built up over the years for that from fans. And it'll be great to go back there. I think there'll be a lot of good crowds there. So we'll see. That'll be fantastic. There is only one thing that I'm annoyed about uh, in this championship, though. And you're gonna guess what it is, aren't you? Uh, that it's not at the bend. Yeah, it's not yet at the bend. I want to see WC at the bend? Come on. <laughs> oh man, well I, I feel like they're gonna get there. You guys just have to be patient, and uh, you guys have to show up. But, I think that's gonna be the most important key is that you guys actually fill that place. Yeah, well, even if it's gonna be scorching. Yeah, scorching weather is definitely going to be the big problem come three weeks' time when we're at the Asian Le Mans series. I mean, this week in Adelaide, we just had a a string of days where the the coolest day of the week was 38 degrees. So, 38 degrees Celsius. Uh, so, we had five days in a row where it was above 38 degrees Celsius. In fact, we had an overnight minimum temperature last Thursday night of 34 degrees celsius which works out what's that what's that in murica units oh man um... that's 94 degrees fahrenheit as an overnight minimum temperature doable doable no, not doable. Yeah. That's not doable. That's so so that's kind of what we we had to contend with uh and hopefully like we don't get that level of temperature through the Asian Le Mans series race because that will be possibly dangerous um, to driver safety. But in saying that, though, I have been on the button with the advertising and the marketing that's been happening around it. I've been seeing a lot of it. Um, so there's definitely uh, a lot of marketing going around. So hopefully we, we fill out the Asian Le Mans series. And then we can get WEC in, in Australia for the first time since... Wow, what the race of a thousand years? Uh, yeah, and that was I. I don't think that was even ACO sanctioned. Yeah, that, that was, was just using American ACO series. rule set. Yeah, yeah, it was the ALMS using the ACO rulebook essentially, but mm. it wasn't like a ACO FI sanctioned event that was that was in Australia. But yeah, yeah, you're. I mean, it's that would be unprecedented. You just yeah. gotta wait. I think again, it's it's you gotta have people show up for that, and yeah. it's unfortunate that it's gonna be so hot, but. We don't know uh, yet. It could be. Way. It could be cool. It could be like we had a cool, cool change. Cool as in the side of the pillow, baby. Cool as in what? Sorry. Cool 
in like the other side of the pillow. Yeah, exactly. Because um, we kind of had that now. It's been it's dropped down to below thirty for the last few days, so it's been a, quite a pleasant change. Um, but anyway, back to back to the WEC, the the real thing we're going to talk about. Um, we've <laughs> had had a conversation about the weather, uh, obligatory. Um, so classic race tracks in Europe. We're going to Silverstone, Monza, and Spa Francorchamps. Classic racetracks in America, going to Sebring. Classic racetracks in Asia, going to Fuji. Uh, the modern uh, facilities of Bahrain. We're going to Kailami, which, as you mentioned, has that historical aspect with the amount of Group C running in its glory days in, in Kailami. And then, of course, rounding out the season with Le Mans, uh, a, a consistent four weeks between each round to start the series, a two-month break over the my summer your winter um between Bahrain and Kailami um which gives a nice window for you to fit in Asian Le Mans series the Daytona 24 and the Bathurst 12 hour um and then a bit more extended breaks towards the end of the series with 6 weeks between Kailami and Sebring 6 weeks between Sebring and Spa-Francorchamps and then 7 weeks heading into Le Mans are you happy with the distribution of the events in terms of the tracks we're going to and how far apart the events are? Yep. Uh, it's an international event. Uh, teams trying to save money. Um, uh, commitments and clashes to other series that have more uh, races for the drivers, you could argue... Uh, would on merit potentially try to encourage more drivers to participate in those series. So I, I, I think how this is at is a very highly calculated uh, procedural uh, calendar kind of drafting where you have this like every like third week or fourth week you're racing uh, stint, which I think is good. Um, F1 does that a little bit where they have every other week or then the, oh, surprise, it's next week. Uh, you know, there's a back-to-back mm. kind of thing is, is I think, good. Um, you know, other series like to do um, every every week or then there's, like, you know, specific segmented breaks that are pretty long. But with sports car racing, most of the time, you're always in a quote-unquote kind of break mode. So um, whatever they can do, I think, to make a consistent schedule that, you know, maybe fans can't just casually remember in their head, oh, it's the third week, fourth week, but if there's something to it. I think that might go a long way to help. Um, but I I would like to see more differentiation. I would like to see more mileage races, if I'm honest. Yeah. If we're going to shift away from four hours and do six-hour races, let's do mileage. Let's do the equivalent of what would be around six hours in a mileage race. And do something like that. I think just to keep differentiating uh, these rounds and to make them unique. Um, yeah, I, I would I agree that, with that. That's highly uh, important. I think and they they're doing that a little bit, but I think they could go. They could take it the extra step. Yeah, I I would agree with that. I think that's the the one thing that's disappointing um, in terms of the way that the season is structured. Now we have moved away from the cookie cutter six hour races, but you know it would be nice to have like a. 500 miles of Silverstone where the proclaimers perform at the podium ceremony or, you know, something like that. 
uh, any idea I've seen floated for, for example, the bend is uh, because the track's seven hundred seven point seven seven kilometers is the seven 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 of the bend. So uh, yeah, like uh, do a hundred laps of of the bend, which would be pretty cool. Uh, a nice way to differentiate it from other events. Um, another thing I want to touch on very quickly before we move on to uh, other talking points in the sports car world is the lack of clashes with other uh, series. So I think I've just, just done a, a brief bit of Googling while you were talking about the uh, race length things. There is at this stage, no clash with uh, the IMSA sports car championship, which is important for, for example, Petit Le Mans. Um, uh, so they're running the week before Petit Le Mans in, uh, in, for the Monza race. There may may not be a clash with the six hours of Kailami and the Bathurst 12 hour. Um, normally the Bathurst 12 hour runs on the first weekend of February, but it could potentially run as the last weekend in January. It's it's kind of that overlapping weekend. So it might be a week out of uh, the Kailami race. And at the moment, it also looks like there's going to be no clashes uh, with any other major sports car series either. So that's pretty encouraging. Um, you know, something that we talk about a lot is trying not to tread on other events in the same sort of wheelbase because, you know, sports car racing is niche enough as it is. We don't want to have to be dividing people between... Uh, major events in the sports car world so that's that's a pretty good pretty good structure as well uh from the aco to get that right absolutely i mean we've we've been critical of them in the past for doing that and i think that they've they've appropriately responded to heat with making some changes and then also you know making some changes for other drivers and stuff i mean they they understand uh, I, you know, uh, in a cold way, I think they don't care sort of <laughs> uh, either to that end, but they are, if, if there's a preference because of, you know, how it will be monetarily wise and also for the goal, overall picture of the championship, it makes sense not to lose drivers or have drivers have to pick and not pick your series. And it makes sense to not risk, have to risk that anyway. And you can kind of just promote it regardless and not have to have this issue ever come up. Um, but yeah, uh, I think that it will always kind of come down to a money issue. Mm. Um, but for right now, they're they're definitely incentive, uh, in, incentivized to not clash and they're doing a good job not to do so. Yeah. So props to the ACO for fixing their shit. <laughs> yeah. Thank yeah. you. Next issue that has popped up in the recent weeks has been the renewed talk of DPI 2.0 and WEC Hypercar Convergence. Now, we were somewhat expecting an announcement from McLaren at Bahrain. It, the The prevailing rumor was that we were going to see a announcement of a hypercar program from McLaren um, or a top-class DPI, like a DPI 2.0 program from McLaren. And instead, we got neither. We got a renewed push to converge the upcoming hypercar regulations with DPI 2.0 to, uh, to create a one global top-level sports car solution. Um, we out of the woodwork has come Zach Brown and also uh, what's his name from Porsche Pascal Zerlinden. 
from Porsche to to add to the add fuel to the fire, so to speak, um, discussing the likelihood of DPI 2.0 and Le Mans hypercar becoming a common platform in the attraction of racing the same car at Le Mans, Sebring, Petit Le Mans, Daytona, all these big events around the world. Um, and it's for the first time, I think it looks like there is a non-zero possibility of it actually happening. There's been plenty of talk since the hypercar regulations have been announced and since DPI 2.0 has been beginning to talk about their development cycle. But I think for the first time, there is an inkling of, wait, there might be something going on here. Is that the impression that you get from it? Yes. Uh, Yes and no. I mean, this is... we. It, it's it's hard to gauge as somebody who obviously isn't a journalist and is included with anybody in, on the inside to get a sense of where we're at with it because there's been so many different types of, hey, we're at this point and then it's died. We're at this point and then it's died or it's gone through it here. So I am tempering every single amount of my emotions. I mean, I've, I've heard so many different kind of rumors coming from people that I have absolutely no idea where they would get any information from, but they say that they do that says that everything's really really close and i mean Mm. we're we're getting these articles coming out and kind of just laying the foundation for making a case for convergence i mean there is definitely some some push and i think some momentum for it but uh i mean i've addressed the elephant in the room which is of the cost of the program and the differentiation between what imps's goals are and and wc's goals are and I, I just, I haven't heard from IMSA specifically addressing what they have kind of said in the past. Now, I'm talking 2015, 2016, when they were saying, WC is doing this, we don't want to do that. Yep. We want to go in and we want to go LMP2 and do all these other things. Um, we're not really hearing that anymore. We're really hearing, hey, uh, WC made a mistake with how they went about concocting their regulations and really making this a dragged out long process that involved kind of caving to the decisions of some manufacturers. We're going to get their input, but we're going to make sure that these, you know, we're, we have a good steady set of regs to push out next time. That's really been it. We've heard that it's going to be cheap. We've heard that it's probably going to involve some similar form not probably the same but similar form to how they're doing right now with uh, standardization of parts i don't know if they're going to have the same amount of chassis like it's going to be the lmp 2.0s yeah. or what but i mean there's just not there's not a lot of information right now to, to get any good read as to hey these things will converge like i like here's where i stand i think it's absolutely doable and possible um this is probably easy. This is just like if it was World Sports Cross Championship GT1 and like the LMP 900s, which you were seeing in 1999. I think the performance windows are close enough for what will be DPI 2.0 if they go hybrid, that you can just BOP them and it'll be okay. Yeah. The The budget issue is where I just don't know where this gets settled and no one is raising that yeah. at all yeah. in this discussion. So the... The budget question is going to be the difficult one to answer. Of course, we've seen the release from the ACO when they released the regulations, the car, the upcoming hypercar regulations saying that the budget cap K 
cap aggressive uh, quotation marks is you should be able to run a competitive race winning team uh, of two cars for 20 million euro a year um including development of your car so that's that's their cap but they're basing that off of creating either a hypercar or a bespoke prototype race car with uh more freedom in engine design and hybrid and limited aerodynamic development that's how they're controlling that cost dpi 2.0 on the other hand has talked about spec hybrid train uh, drive trains or reduced chassis options or yeah as you made mention of um specking out parts of the car um to basically cost control via common parts um so it's looking like the DPI 2.0 program will be a much more cost-effective program. Uh, and in fact, McLaren, Zach Brown has come out and said, if we get con- convergence, we're, we're aiming for convergence. This is what we want. We want uh, DPI 2.0 and uh, hypercar convergence. But we'd most likely build a car to DPI, uh, DPI 2.0 regulations and race it in Europe. Uh, that's what they want to achieve. Um, so it's... It would be fantastic to see. It'll bring back the, you know, the glory days of being able to race the same cars from across the Atlantic and like what we see in GTLM or GTE at the moment with the GT cars. But yeah, as you made mention, the elephant in the room is the budget, uh, is the budget differences. And I don't think a ACO team or a team abiding to ACO regulations would like would very much like to get beaten by a team spending half as much at uh in terms of development at one of the biggest motor races in the year. I don't think that would go down well <laughs> with Sega Toyota and Aston Martin if Zaki Brown builds a car for five million euro and goes and wins Le Mans after spending a quarter of the amount. Right. And also I the way that they're going to have, <clears throat> if they do convergence, if they have uh, IMSA spec cars that are just built to IMSA spec, race in WC exclusively, and then do just one-off events in IMSA, like how much of that builds into the next ecosystem that uh, the WC wants to do in what is it going to be twenty? You know, so in mm. five years from now, <clears throat> and they're not on the same schedule. Yeah. And they're so not on, you, the, they're not on the same of, yearly schedule either. No. So you you have this weird dichotomy between, okay, so if they all converge and we do have a quote-unquote success story and you see Toyota and Peugeot stick it out, AMR, let's say, sticks it out too, I, that would probably be less likely. But to look onto the next set of regs, would you run the risk of having people just really like look at IMSA to be laying the groundwork for, for what they're going to make because they were the most popular slash potentially successful, um, you know, uh, uh, category of, of car. And the way that this was handled in all previous years was just that the ACO had their own series essentially, or their own style of car. And if they didn't, they just deemed one to be appropriate. Well, now if you have their own style of car while also having another one that they could quote unquote deem appropriate, like which is the better platform, that becomes very awkward for the ACO in every single sense of the word to go, hey, why did you make a regulation that no one really likes, no one is into, and you're, you know, like the people that you sold this uh, to are at at a potential disadvantage. And 
at the same time, you know, like, why would we, if, because you made that mistake now, why would we want you to do that? Let's just mm. have him to make the regulations. Yeah. Especially and in then it's, a lot it, of ripple effects here to this. Yeah. It's very awkward for the ACO because, uh, especially in the current racing climate where, you know, the, there isn't an, an impetus to use sports cars as a development hub anymore. Um, you know, because, because that's what that's what the ACO kind of want. They want things to be on the cutting edge of technology. They want to be pushing the boundaries of technology. At the moment, the the worldwide manufacturing climate isn't quite there to do it in the way that the ACO is trying to get it done. Yeah, it's it's hard for the ACO to design regulations that allow the pushing of boundaries of technology, but also reconcile with the IMSA way of doing things, which is more specking things out, cost control, uh, you know, racing on a budget, branding, branding your, your specked out, uh, P2 car with a, uh, friggin' a badge on it that says, Hey, look, I'm a different brand. So it's, yeah, as you said, really awkward, uh, time. It's a really awkward, uh, prospect for the ACO. But in saying that, uh, Daily Sports Cup put out an article talking about uh, you know, different players in the the convergence game, and the the it signs off the article with the question is how likely is a is a global platform? It's as close as it's ever been, and Gerard Nouveau even commented said we wouldn't be working as hard as we are if we didn't think it was possible. So there's definitely more than just chatter now. It's looking like something may be on the cards which is very exciting and just a little scary i just um the the x factor is going to be what the dpi 2.0 formula looks like yeah and i mean there's so many different rumors going around that hybrid will get ditched that they'll they'll go the larger hybrid that this will have its own that it'll, it'll replicate what dpi was exactly to the new mp2s uh, or that it's going to go to its own monocoque system like we're there's that seems to be almost what what's going to happen next because i i think hypercar was you kind of knew that that was the direction they were going to go with that they Mm. liked what dpi was but they didn't like how uh you know very uh spec it was Mm. and they wanted to kind of make bridge that gap but with dpi 2.0 you're like well we've kind of touted that this is a really really good idea but we also are aware that we're, you know, we're get, we're garnering attention, but we're also kind of garnering the the attention of OEMs that want to maybe invest more in our product. And they're, I don't know where they end up with this more this large amount of attention because they're getting a lot of attention from OEMs. Like mm. this is for for what their budget uh, proposals are. They're a lot. They're they're just they're so much far down in what they could potentially be asking some of these teams to to show up with. And I think that's why they're getting so much attention is because they're just simply not doing it. They're keeping prices very low, but that comes at a cost when it comes to trying to converge with a series that clearly thinks that OEMs can spend a lot more money and do so and be successful in something very 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 similar to what Imps is trying to do too. So. It just is going to remain to be seen once we get another state of the state of the series address yeah. by uh, by by uh, well now by Dunan, um, and and to see where DPI 2.0 stands because I think it's now in their court completely to see what's going to go on because if convergence is going to happen, I think we're the the 
the proposed DPI 2.0, what we have right now that we know of, is going to be different than what we get. Yeah. It's going to be a very interesting couple of months hearing how this all plays out. So we will keep track of that as best we can. I'm sure when news breaks, it'll be posted friggin' everywhere. Um, and we will see what pans out. Now, finally, I think that brings us to the end, not only of this episode, but of 2019 in the sports car world. Uh, it has been a year, uh, to say the least. It's been a very weird year for the WEC um, with the split season. It's been uh, a bit all over the place in sports car racing around the world. Um, but it has been an enjoyable year to follow along with you guys, uh, the listeners, and along with the subreddit at r slash WEC. Coggy, for you, uh, what do you think has been your favorite series of 2019, if you had to pick one? We'll just do a bit of a 2019 recap. What was your favorite series? Uh, I It's close between um, Elamas uh that was a good series in my opinion still that rolled through it uh and uh the michelin pilot sport cup challenge how did i know you were gonna say that <laughs> because uh because it's all you've been pilot. talking about all goddamn year <laughs> yeah because that has been probably the best uh, gt uh multi-class racing uh, series that or a uh, championship that has been on this year um i think it hasn't been the best that i've ever seen no uh but uh, they, uh, they've had at least two to three specific races in which were memorable enough for me to rewatch them at like, I would say a week to, to a month later because they literally had stuff going on from start to finish. Um, and so if you can get that in a sports car race, let alone a, like a smaller GT support, yeah, championship race, all the power to you. And I thought that that series was out of the was out of the park especially seeing it live in person doesn't hurt either nice yeah good call mess always 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 solid um i i don't think there i won't say i don't think there will ever be a a a year that that won't qualify for me as being one of the top series but it was very very good this year um despite the fact that it's just orecas um and we still only have two lmp3 uh manufacturers but that will change next year and you're really and excited about that, aren't you? It. You're really I excited am super about that. Excited. Dude, I, I am I like again, if I can stress to people, prototypes are probably my like where my head's at for all time. Like prototypes. That's it. I love multi-class racing because prototypes get to overtake slower GT cars. I love prototypes. So if you can give me like 20 different new unique prototypes a year, like I will be over the moon all the time because it's just cool technology, cool aer- aerodynamics, and um a lot of performance. So yeah. yeah, the new LMP3s are coming, I think next year in LMS. So that'll shake that up as well. Fantastic. So, lots to look forward to in both those se- uh, yeah, series. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I've got to say LMP2 and LMP3 and LMS for me has been the series to watch more so than IMSA, more so than WEC. Um, I think every single race had a significant story. Every single race went down to the wire in two of the three classes and the championship battles in P3 and in P2 at the end were edge of your seat sort of stuff. Like the, the championship battle between the, the P2 uh, championship contenders at Algarve were just some of the best, most tense 
championship deciders I've seen in a long time. So ELMS for me, like 17 P2 cars, 15 P3 cars as well. It was just unbelievable. Uh, it's a healthy, healthy series. Yeah. Man. Um, it's, it's been like that for years now. Yeah, it, exactly right. There has not been a weak ELMS season in the years I've been watching it. Uh, next question I have for you. What do you reckon has been the common thread between all racing that we've had this year? And I'm talking um, everything from WEC to ELMS to blank pain to SRL. IMSA. Yeah. What, what do you, um, what, what's been the most common uh, common thread or common theme or uh, common feeling that you've gotten from, post from racing? Okay, damn it. Damn it, <laughs> chat beat me to it. I was, dude, I, I wasn't looking at chat until I just pulled it up now and I see that nothing in it, nothing but that in there. So post race penalties, baby. That is, that is by far 2019 for me. If you had to say one thing to describe endurance racing in 2019, post race penalties. I hate that I agree with you. Um, I was going to say rain, actually. I was going to say at every major endurance race this year, we have had rain. Um, you know, we had rain at the Daytona 24. We had rain at Nürburgring. Rain. We had snow at Spa-Francorchamps, for God's sake. Rain at Rolex 24. Rain at Sebring. Yep. Uh, there was uh, the Spa 24 had sections rained out. We had Kyle Army underwater. There was, it was just, everything, everything was rainy. But yeah, no, post-race penalties in 2019 have been the bane of M.W. Clarkson's fantasy WEC existence. Or just like, just in, in, in sports car racing, endurance racing fans in general, man. Mm. I mean, like SRO, um, did we have like 24-hour series post-race penalties? I feel like that was a thing. ICGT racing or IGTC racing had yep. some issues too, I think, with post-race penalties. So Le Mans it's just not like a, having the, yeah. the result of GTM change the day after in post-race tech. But I... I mean, I it's it's just it's unfortunate that we're we're left to argue that you know, and mm. it, it I wish that we were in a position that you know if there were post race penalties, they were understandable. You know, <laughs> like yeah. you know somebody left a broomstick shoved in you know part of the car. Okay, well <laughs> probably should penalize them for that, or you know the car is literally grinding on the ground. All right, well, fine, yeah, probably should get penalized for that. But some of these are just so so ticky tack it's uh it's 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 hard to take them and they just always they're happening more frequently and I, and other people have spoken to that too where it's just like they're it's understandable mm. but how frequent they seem to be getting i think is a worrisome problem yeah. and that should be brought up in potentially future regulation rule sets yes yeah, i agree with that uh on the other hand it's good to know that the rules are being enforced uh, as 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 sucky as it is to have results change on you the day after, at least it's good to know that rules are being enforced. Uh, next question: uh, best race of the year. Mm. Bathurst twelve hours, pretty good. Um, it's kind of hard to hard to beat the finish of that, really. Yep, I agree. Bathurst twelve hours, my best race of the year. Not only for the finish, because the finish was off the hook and it was nuts, but also the way that the strategies evolved through the race. Like one of the one of the beauties of that race was you had that long green flag period. It was about seven hours with one yellow flag just right in the middle of it. Uh to to let the strategies play out. And you ended up with, 
you know, the Mercedes doing something different to the Porsche, doing something different to the BMW. Everyone was on a slightly different strategy and they were all converging to the end. So that's my race of the year, I think. My my runner-up would be the Nürburgring 24. Nürburgring? Even with yeah. the controversy with with the way that that race ended as well. I, well, the, 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 the finisher who was pretty much a P12, P13 car won the race. Yeah. So... Yeah, no one wanted um, to. No one wanted to win that race. Right. Yes, that's that's what I'm saying too. Um, in terms of now, okay, actually, yeah. So in a major event, yes, best race of the year was the Mitchell Potts Workout Challenge race at Road America. At yeah, Road America. Yep. Yep. <laughs> um, the, yeah. When the when the finish is decided by a driver accidentally hitting the pit road speed limiter button on his steering wheel, uh, all while intermittent rain with dry tires with with front wheel drive uh cars that are technically slower in class but are driving faster than the fastest cars on the track like it was an absolute nut fest of a race and that was i think under two hours so it's a easily it's an easy digestible race for even like new upcoming race fans uh to sports car racing watch that race yeah it, it, incredible incredible race and even so, if you even if you don't want to watch the whole full race the last lap has been doing the rounds on social media since it happened so even just find a replay of the last lap and that kind of gives you enough of an idea to let you know how messy that race was yep 100 percent recommend yeah. and, and oh, right and the chat makes a good point these are all gt3 races or gt4 races and yeah true. they're not they're they're not wrong uh dpi and lmp1 have been kind of uh, frustrating i mean mazda with their wins and whatnot but there there doesn't seem to be like this what wc had with like these audi porsche toyota titanic bouts where it's like a lap and a half of battles i mean there are but like they're very short-lived imsa seems to do what gtp was too where it's just like you get these teams that just kind of push them push their way right to the front just start clocking lap times just run away from the field clock in like three to four wins in a row or just go on like these huge stretches like gtp always did that mm. and like you would have these races where like the eagle mark fours would be way 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 better than the nissans and then the nissans would just be way 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 better then you have the jaguars kind of fit in between but there wouldn't be this like where they're hounding each other and just kind of overtaking it's kind of like really large huge breathable gaps some of the the um the uh the street racing Okay, you could say that Bella, uh, Bell Isle, that kind of thing. But yeah. outside of that, there just seems to be like this uh, typical IMSA kind of prototype racing to it, which doesn't have a ton of flash and flair outside of when you really get those like, oh man, they're really driving hard for that overtake. And you see some bumping and banging a lot yeah. of times that you don't normally see in other European series. So. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, anyway, I'll also yeah, give that's a. Why. I like GT racing. Yeah, I'll also give a, a shout out. Someone's made mention in the chat, which is also a good shout. The IMSA race at Lime Rock was one of the the best strategy races of the year, um, yeah, which went down to a, a two stop versus a three stop, which was decided on the last lap of the race at Lime Rock. So that was a pretty good one as well. Uh, yep. Yep. Next question: most heartbreaking moment of the year in sports cars. Uh, the Toyota. Uh, to, number, number seven the eight, number seven where they number seven, number seven, yeah. where they changed the wrong tire because of the tire pressure sensor uh well here here's the mistake they changed a single tire when they yeah. should have changed four exactly because they had they had a tire pressure 
uh, sensor go off, which was correct, but was uh, incorrectly installed. And so they changed the literally changed the wrong tire, something that you'd kind of go, you know, to a 22 year old who, you know, makes some some real basic mental mistake on the pitch. And, you know, you're like, oh, come on, you know, in four years, there's no way he makes that same mistake. But Toyota has been here forever and ever and ever. <laughs> yeah. and they still make that mistake. So yeah. and it cost and it should have been that that team to win it. So, yeah. uh, you know, it just it sucks so much for them. But. That would probably be the the heartbreak of the year for me as a Toyota fan. So fair enough. Um, I will counter that with Andy Suchek's uh, kill switch problem at the uh, the Bathurst twelve hour where they debuted the new Bentley and instead of turning the pit lane pit limiter off twice uh, in two pit stops, he hit the kill switch on the exit of the pit lane and that basically cost them a chance at the podium. So I, and, and he was torn up about that. Like he, uh, he went to Twitter later that day and was just like, I cannot believe what I've done. I am. Yeah. He was broken. Uh, so I, I would say that was the most heartbreaking race of the year. Basically the Bathurst 12 hour had a lot of emotion. <laughs> it was just, there was just a lot going on. Um, honorable mention as well to, to Keating losing the, the GTM win and, uh, someone, uh, in the chat, uh, the Team Thunderhawk, um, mentioning the SMP team at Blank Pain, um, which honestly I haven't caught up on, so I don't know the details. But apparently that's that was pretty heartbreaking. Do you know what that one? Heartbreaks all around. Yeah, heartbreaks um, all around. Yeah, 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 yeah. I yeah, but I don't know. There, yeah, there was a um, oh, there was another one I think in him, so that was pretty. When Mazda caught on fire. Well, that yeah, I guess. <laughs> But that was just kind of like, uh, you know, kind of eye rolling at that point. But yeah, that that's going to be an interesting thing. I'm going to try to get over to the roar and try to get some pictures and video and whatnot. But it'll be interesting to see how the how Mazda tries to attack this again. Yeah, (laughs) Mazda or the new Toyota heartbreak, definite heartbreak right there. Yeah, cool. Final question. Most awesome personal moment for you we've had a lot go on in terms of endurance chat and wc subreddit and in our own personal endeavors in motorsport what for you has been the most the the thing that's made you most proud as a motorsport consumer or a subreddit member or a podcast member or whatever uh, well seeing the subreddit logo on a side of a like race car man like, yeah that's awesome uh, we we could say that in a, a couple different disciplines at this point, but uh, the the LMP1 uh, representation on the rear quarter panels of the Janetta LMP1s uh, are like uh, incredible. Um, I don't I don't recall any other team ever doing something like this, and for us to be in a position to be selected for something like that that's that that just kind of speaks to the whole community and. Uh, and, you know, and just the passion for a whole lot of dedicated individuals that are part of the this group. So, um, yeah, I, I that kind of kind of came out of the blue, but I think it is fitting just for like I, like I said before, just the amount of dedicated people that are here. That's just kind of almost like a, a showcase of of yeah uh, 
of what they what they can accomplish and what we've done. So that was really awesome. Yeah, I I would have to agree. The fact that we were invited for onto that opportunity, we we didn't ask for that. We were invited. People approached us for the first time and said, "Hey, do you want this opportunity?" That for that for me is it shows how far this community has come from the humble days of a bunch of idiots you know ragging shit on each other at 4am in an IRC chat to where we are now where we've got a multitude of point uh, posts a day different discussions going on a lot of our a lot of the big news ends up with uh 20 or uh, 200 or 300 comments um all a very very good discussion it's actually it's actually a really great place to be um i'd also like to throw in the the sponsorship of the 12 hours of bruno and the 24 hours of coda for the creventic series seeing the gt3 cars and tcr cars and all those cars with our branding um for the subreddit and for this podcast as well was really really cool um so I'll put I'll put that up there as well. That was a really really cool moment, and and getting like getting Chris on to do a preview podcast for the Bruno uh, race, which he did literally standing out of the front of his friend's driveway off his phone, just completely off the top of his head. That was friggin' awesome. I was so impressed <laughs> by Chris there. <laughs> yeah, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed yeah. that part a bit. It'll 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 be fun to have him at Daytona, and hopefully we can get some good interviews from some people. Yes, that, uh, that you- are. That are are common voices in the sport, shall we say? You you gotta get you gotta get onto MP. See if you can do an interview with MP. I, I, that would be cool. Oh, to hear them go back and forth, I think would be uh, yeah would definitely be would uh, good listening. Let's just put it that way. Yeah. Um, on a more personal note, and more more relevant to this podcast, firstly, I'd like to also throw out um, the interview I did with Graham Goodwin. That was the coolest thing at that point in time that I'd ever been able to do, to be invited up to the media center to interview one of the voices of sports cars. That was that was really special. Um, and the uh, as well, the aerodynamics podcast that uh, I did with Oliver, um, with Trevor Wasaurus, I think... That's been our widest listened to episode as well. I think that's got something like 650 downloads. Uh, so that to hear how successful that was, that was really, really cool as well. But for me, I want to be very, very selfish here. And sorry to everyone listening. But for me, the the moment I'm most proud of in terms of my participation in sports cars was being a published journalist, I guess. Being a published motorsport reporter, getting some of my work... Uh, published on daily sports car um, was a really really big step in the direction I want to take for me and the amount of the amount of love the amount of support I got from this community um, on RSWEC and other parts of the sports car world has really been the highlight for me this year and I have honestly I have all of you listening to thank I wouldn't be able to have the experiences I've had do the things that I do in terms of the podcast in terms of writing these articles in terms of being a part of the greater sports car landscape without this community and so it's a it's a reflection on what this community has done that I get to go out and do these things and I am so eternally grateful for that and for every single person listening, for every single person commenting on threads or in the Discord chat or 
whatever whatever every single person subscribed to r slash wec it's it's with great pleasure that i am uh that i'm a part of that community and able to to participate and to be able to run it and to be able to go on doing amazing things because of it so yeah so thank you yeah man another another great year yeah exactly and it's it's gonna be crazy uh next year as well and you know really all of this is your fault because if you didn't run such a good place to start with i wouldn't have never gotten involved and we wouldn't be here four years later the can you believe cusp of new regulations yeah, my friend can we now at a, a new regulation yeah can you can you believe that we've been doing this podcast specifically now for four years our first episode was the 2016 daytona 24 and here we are four years later we're almost 100 episodes in we're on like ni- episode 95 or 97 or something uh yeah can you believe four years ago that we'd be he- sitting here now doing this we're uh we're due for a reg change we're due for a reg change oh shit yeah. <laughs> <laughs> have we have we no, outlasted have we outlasted our development cycle right yeah 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 we, we we we've maxed out the performance window uh let's just say of uh <laughs> our current structure no but uh it's it, it's it's awesome uh it's kind of flown by and yeah we're entering a brave new world i guess uh, especially the next couple of years it's going to be pretty damn tumultuous with like a whole lot of new kind of similar looking equipment but a lot of different changes so we'll see who comes and who goes but it's we're supposed to see a whole lot of new new stuff uh next year so hang tight it's gonna be it's gonna be a cool 2020 uh it's gonna be a very interesting le mans and a very interesting transition to the new regulations um but most of all it's going to be a very very good year hanging out with you guys listening so thank you very much cooking master fl austin zetsman for your your patronage of this podcast and all the work that you've put in over the year and the years thank you michael for literally every a weekly update in the world of sports car racing uh on the sub and being all the presence that it is in discord and, and during the rest discussions so um yeah we'll uh we'll continue to kind of push through um i'm sure the sub will be updated soon i don't know we're working diligently on the new styling on like the app and and the new kind of subreddit looks that kind of thing so that when we do eventually about humbug upgrade to everything <laughs> we've got uh, sprites and we've got the uh, flare sheets that kind of stuff so bear with us but yeah it's been uh, it's been great to have uh, you guys along for the ride again this year and uh next year should be uh it should be, be a lot a lot it's gonna be a, it's gonna be fast that's all i'm gonna say about that yeah it's gonna go so quickly we're not gonna, we're not gonna have any breaks next year it's gonna be mental um yep. yeah so again thank you to all of our listeners thank you for your extended uh extended listening of us of uh, of random people around the world wanting to talk sports cars and here's to a very very good 2019 and if i get this episode before out before we get there merry christmas uh and happy holidays and have a happy and safe new year and we'll see you all very very soon uh for a chat about the raw before the 24 uh asian the one series at the bend and then straight into daytona 24 and Bathurst 12 hour. Thank you very much for listening. I'm Mac Zelavari. Peace out.
asking how do drivers overtake the gazoo? You don't, because they don't have any hybrid power. Uh, oh no, I didn't. I didn't thank everyone who's been a part of the podcast for the year, like Lada and Chris and Kiwi and Trev and Zol and Bujok and everyone. Damn it! Oh, 